Michael de la Torre grew up watching his grandmother make delicious flour tortillas in their family kitchen. This is this is being Mexican. We go to my grandma's house and she's heating up tortillas that she made and like this is the best food in the world. <laughs> so the taste and smell of fresh tortillas defined his childhood. But as he got older, he realized that not everyone felt the same about his precious flour tortilla. You know, the, the flour tortilla doesn't always have the best reputation. Yeah, it's a bit of a niche tortilla. You know, it's in many ways, it's seen as inauthentic and it's seen as um, just sort of like a, a less respected uh, version of a tortilla. Sometimes people can be snobby about it. There is often debate as to which tortilla is more Mexican, flour or corn. The truth is, both. Flour tortillas are more common in the northern part of Mexico, where the terrain is more suited to growing wheat than corn. Because few people know the origins of the flour tortilla, they've gotten a bad rap. I didn't really think of it as being an inauthentic thing at all. But then, kind of when I moved up north into uh, San Francisco, Oakland, you don't have as many Norteños up here. You have a lot of people from the Yucatan, Guatemala, Salvador, so... Corn is king, is queen. Like, corn is what rules these lands. Michael went on to study and work as a teacher. Yet, somehow, he always kept finding himself coming back to food. You know, it worked all right. Um, and then my mom was like, why don't you just go to culinary school? Like, you just love food. You're so good at it. And uh, I was like, okay. He became a chef. And then... I was having this conundrum where I was like, how do I actually create something new? Like, everything has been done. There's a recipe for everything. There is a, a restaurant for every type of thing. And then... On a trip to Mexico with some friends, he finally found his muse. I remember just going into the grocery store and seeing, you know, half a dozen different brands of flour tortillas. But it's, it's, there's room for all this variation. Each one of these people are doing something different about it. This is something you would never see in Oakland or Berkeley. So he opened up Chulo, his own flour tortilla pop-up in the Bay Area, to try and bring back the reputation of his beloved flour tortilla. I feel a bit of a calling um, to be a disseminator of this, uh, this amazing product and to educate as well. There's still so much more room for everyone to to learn and to, you know, get get down on the flour tortilla train. As you can probably tell, this episode is going to explore how two chefs are questioning the authenticity and decolonization of the food in their kitchen and what that means for how we all cook and eat. More after the break. Can you describe for us how an actual flour tortilla, not the one we see on our shelf in the supermarket, is supposed to taste? Sure. It's supposed to have a lot more fat than you get in the, the stuff you get in the store. It definitely has like a weight to it. And I think that a lot of store-bought things are just kind of these like airy discs that don't have soul. Michael finds a connection to his Mexican roots when he makes flour tortillas. That's why he feels so strongly about this question of authenticity. Words like authentic, original, traditional. They've all been used to describe Latino cuisine. But the issue with this vocabulary is that our food has gone through so many changes throughout history to the point that words like authentic don't really mean much at all. Because of this, Michael, like many other Mexican-Americans, kept hearing that flour tortillas weren't as legitimate as corn tortillas. 
authentic to what are you authentic to like regional sonoran mexican cuisine right now or are you authentic to that cuisine 150 years ago or are you authentic to 2000 years ago Wheat was only brought over to Latin America 500 years ago, which is part of the reason why there's debate as to its authenticity. The flour tortilla is a result of colonization, and therefore by many, it's not seen as really being from Mexico. More movements are spreading, though, encouraging Latinos to return to the ways our ancestors lived before their homelands were colonized. For those of us who are exploring what it means to decolonize ourselves, starting with our diet is a reasonable first step. But what does it mean to decolonize our diets? And can we? It is authentically Mexican because being Mexican is being a melange of all of these influences. It is being indigenous. It is being colonized. It is being, uh, you know, multiple like religious like migrations and diasporas that have made Mexico what it is and made Mexican food what it is in many instances. Like you wouldn't be... Food wouldn't be where it's at right now without the Arabs who came over with, you know, their lamb and their their ways of cooking on a spit. And it wouldn't be what it is without the Lebanese. And it wouldn't be what it is without, like, the Jewish and the Germans and uh, the Spanish, of course. And Michael has a point. That fusion of so many cultures is part of our story. And if we're trying to decolonize our diets, does that mean we're essentially removing parts of our identity? As uh, Latinx people... We identify strong with the food of, of our countries. I grew up with, with traditional Peruvian food. That's Nico Vera, a Peruvian chef who has personally and professionally dealt with questions of identity as he interrogates his own diet. Nico fell in love with cooking as a child, became a chef, and learned to cook Peruvian food. But then his life abruptly changed. I had a running accident on mountain trails. And uh, I broke my foot, and it uh, recovery took a really long time. And uh, I tried many things, but nothing worked. I had read a lot about uh, athletes that had success with plant-based diets. And so I started uh, implementing that change, and the results were fantastic, almost instant. This change in diet also shifted how Nico experienced many of Peru's prized dishes. He could no longer eat the foods he grew up with. What happens when you stop eating that? Do you lose your identity? Who are you? If I, who am I if I no longer eat ceviche, right? Or lomo saltado? What, what happens? So as Nico grappled with these questions, he started to look deeper into the history of his foods and found that a lot of these ingredients were pre-colonial. Uh, like the hot peppers, ají amarillo, ají panca. And so the soul of the dish was still there. Like many of its Latin American neighbors, Peru was colonized by the Spanish. And its food today is the result, in part, of that colonization. We're talking about Inca and pre-Inca, Spanish, African slaves, Italian immigrants, Asian, Chinese indentured workers. It's not that somebody came and and said, oh, I really want to combine this and that and come up with something new. It's more uh, accidental, a happenstance. What does the colonization and decolonization of food mean to you? And where do we draw the line between fusion and appropriation and the disappearing of the original culture of food? If something is appropriated, it is in essence stolen. A chef from the United States goes to Asia, comes back to his restaurant, and he says, look, here is an elevated dish from this country in Asia. 
Because of colonization, so much of indigenous, African, and Asian culture has been appropriated. It's understandable why a return to culinary practices that existed before the theft of ingredients and cooking methods is a conversation more of us are having. And although we're definitely not grateful for the effects of colonization, we also can't deny it's part of our history as Latinos. So how do we, at the very least, get to a decolonized mindset around our food? I think it's really important to, to look at the history. If you, if you know where something came from, if you know its story, you are looking at the past. And that's really important. And Michael agrees. I'm inspired and I inspire other chefs and other people that are borrowing traditions that they don't belong to, to know the history, to talk about the history, to give credit, to give props, and giving the original grandmothers, uh, cultures, traditions, giving them the due respect that they deserve and not making it about yourself because it's bigger than that, you know? So my question for you is, do you think it's even possible to decolonize our food? You know, 100%, it's a struggle. Um, I do think there are ways in which we can have high, a lot of reverence for the ingredients and still be able to put some cheese on your quesadilla if you want to. For me, food is more than nourishment. It's the ultimate pleasure. It's a way to express love, an experience that moves your senses and helps carry on our culture and learn about new ones. I know you all listening can relate. Food is sacred. But the sanctity of food has been diluted by colonization, industrialization, and our instant gratification lifestyle. All of that makes it really hard for us to trace our food back to its source and honor the ingredients in our dishes. We likely won't ever be able to eat like our ancestors did and fully return to our roots. But the more we learn about our food's history, the more we can try. You can subscribe to the Pulsa Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulso.org. The Pulso podcast is produced and edited by Charlie Garcia and Lisanne Ramos. Additional editing by Steph Amaya Mora. Research and booking by Turilla Chavez, Ray Aguilera, Ana Mendoza, and Sandina Malouf. Original music by Julian Blackmore. Our cover art was designed by Jonathan Torres. And I'm your host, Liza Larcón. The voices you hear in our intro, that's the Pulso team. Thanks for listening. Hey, Pulso fam. I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? Atlas Lingue host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language, and this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80 Podcasts.